Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we've been reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. And today we finally finished chapter four. And so we're going to be discussing sections five, 5.1, 5.2, and 5.3. And these look at the introduction to the delivering results section, writing total functions, using callbacks instead of returning, and representing failure with a benign value. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So what did you make of the beginning of chapter five, Saron? I really liked chapter five. I liked it a lot, especially coming from the last sections that were very dense and very heavy and the introduction to five and being able to kind of take a break from that density was very, very nice. So I really enjoyed it. What'd you think? Yeah, these sections felt like a breeze compared to the last two that we looked at. So it was Mm -hmm. a welcome respite. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So chapter five is called Delivering Results, and it opens with a quote that I've never heard of before. It says, be conservative in what you send, be liberal in what you accept. And this is Postel's Law. Were you familiar with this before? No, I've heard variations of it, but I wouldn't have known it as Postel's Law. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So it kind of set the scene up very nicely, transitioning from all the inputs that we've been dealing with so far, and now we're switching to what we give, right? What we give away uh, at the end of our method calls. And so here we talk about how we've been really, really focusing on the internals of our method. And Avdi specifically says that we've been focusing on telling a coherent story. So he goes back to this idea that we're writing stories and there's a narrative and we really want to make sure that everything makes sense and is very coherent and cohesive. Yes. And then he says, so now we've done that. What about the other end? What about what comes out of our coherent methods? And he says, now we need to think about the outputs and make it easy for the clients of our code. And it made me think when we've been talking recently about what are those things that more experienced developers always have at the back of their mind. And it's this other thing, this consideration of who or what is going to use the result of this method and what can I do for them? And Avdi characterizes it nicely on the following page where he says, how can we be kind to our methods callers? Oh, That's so nice. I like that. And also, when we talk about confident Ruby, we so far have been talking about how do we make sure that when we're using our code, that we're giving it input and it's operating in a very confident way. But in this section, it also broadened that definition a little bit for me, where it said we also want the clients of our code to be able to write confidently too, right? So it's not just about me and my experience and how confident I feel. It's about the the clients, the developers, the other people who are going to be using it for their own reasons that are maybe different from my reasons. And we want to make sure that they can write in a confident way as well. Cool. So let's go to the meat of it, which is 5.1, writing total functions. In this section, Avdi asks us to think about a method that could have many different styles of results. So you may get nothing, you may get one result, or you may get many. And it's very difficult when you don't know what form of result you're going to get. So how can you unify that? And the particular example that we look at in this section, we talk about how can we guarantee getting an array no matter the number of results that we return. Yes. 
So in the example that he gives, we return a bunch of different things, an array, a string, or nil. And I feel like there's been this common theme in these chapters where nil is bad, and we try not to return nil whenever we can. And so even in an example where the answer actually is nil, because there is nothing to return, we still want to wrap that in an array. Yes, and this is where Avdi introduced the concept of a total function. So in math, that was really weird for me to say as a British person, <laughs> in maths... <laughs> Wait, how do you say it? We have an S on the end because it's mathematics. It's a, that actually it's makes a plural thing. Yeah. Okay, anyway. well that's cool. In maths, a total function is a function which is defined for all possible inputs. And we're going to look at it slightly different in Ruby. And we're going to say that when you have a total function in Ruby, it will never return nil, no matter what the input. Mm -hmm. Because nil essentially represents nothing. And we want to say that we're always going to get something. We're always going to get, in this case, a collection, whether yes. you've got zero results or many. Yes. And so this is an example where for the first time I looked at the, the the code that wasn't written very well and I said obviously I wouldn't do it that way which is a first for me because I feel like every time he introduces code you know the the bad version of the code I look at it and I go that's not too bad uh, so I feel very you know I feel like I'm learning stuff by having that reaction so he has this uh, method called find words and at the end of it he has this conditional that says if it's nothing return nil if it's one thing return the string and in order to make that method a total function and just define everything for all inputs and not have that nil value the only thing we have to do is just remove the conditional at the end which is pretty straightforward yes because what you can do is it will return if it doesn't find anything because there's a select method call in this method, it will return an empty array if it doesn't find anything by default. And so that's great, but obviously this is too easy. Of course. <laughs> and with all great stories, there's always an obstacle. <laughs> and so Avdi presents us with a variation of find words, which this time has a guard clause. And this guard clause says, if, you're, if an argument is not passed, then just return. So give an early return. And the guard clause is something that we talked about a few sections ago. So it's a familiar thing. And so in this context of avoiding nil and making sure we have consistent outputs, what do we do with that guard clause? So we know that for a total function in this case, we need to return an array no matter what. And at the moment with the guard clause, if no prefix is passed, then it will return nil. So therefore, we just need to edit that guard clause to say return empty array if prefix.empty. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that way, no matter what happens, we get an array and we have a total function, which is really nice. Yeah, and the key takeaway from this slight variation of the find words method is that you have to look for all the possible places that your method may return yes. and make sure that you've got that consistent interface. So it's not just at the end. There could be things at the beginning or in the middle that will cause your method to return. And in those cases, make sure that you're returning that consistent thing. Right, especially if you have different case statements or different you know, branches in your conditionals. Make sure to catch all those little places. And hopefully there aren't that many places, right? Yes, I know. If you've got too many, that's, that's another problem. That's another issue, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So then one of the other examples that he says is, well, what if you have something that he calls magic words, which automatically makes me happy. 
And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really, it's a kind of a, a silly example. It's a contrived example that just says, you know, what if there's another situation that you need to account for as well? And so in this case, the idea is you're finding the prefix and you have this, um, these magic words and you want to see, is the, the prefix match the magic words? That's right, right? Yes, and Avdi sets it up, like you said, it's a rather contrived example, but he sets it up so that if you find a magic word, it just returns the magic word as a string. And so how can we turn a string into an array, Saran? Well, we can use our array function, which we learned about, oh my goodness, it feels right like so long ago, right? Um, in, the, in the book, he references page 73, so definitely very, very early on in the book. And so we can just take that string and pass it into array with a capital A, and we'll get back an array with that string, nice and easy. Yep, the return of our conversion functions, always mm-hmm. there to help us out. Yes. And so that's the end of that section. A very straightforward section where it says, don't put an extra burden on callers by having this inconsistent representation of what your method returns. Make it easy where you can. And he just goes through these three examples and says, here is how you ensure that an array is returned every time. Yeah, and when I think about different tools that we've used that return arrays, that's what they generally do, right? And we talk about like active record and what happens when you get one result versus a bunch of results. It, it all returns an array. So that interface makes it really easy for me to not have to worry about, okay, well, if you do this, now I have to handle things differently. I can treat things the same way. So it's very applicable to the way that we see things when we code. Yeah. So shall we go to the next section? Let's do it. So this is callback instead of returning. And in this case... We're back to blocks and we're saying rather than returning, there are cases where we'll want to yield to a block because we can get more meaningful information on success rather than a Boolean value of true or false. And I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I always felt like I really need to use blocks and I really need to use yields. And I see it, especially now that we talked about it last section, I'm going back to code that I've seen and read and I'm I'm noticing that they're kind of everywhere, but For some reason, I always felt very intimidated to use it. You know, just using a standard true and false just feels so much easier. And I'm really happy we had a whole section just tackling the difference between the two and being able to say a block is actually more flexible and nicer and cleaner and just more helpful. Yes, it's it it just gives you more powerful functionality, as we're going to see in this chapter. And the example that Avdi uses is one that we've had before. I love how all this stuff is coming around again. It's really mm-hmm. like, like on a higher level, this book is just one great story. <laughs> uh, and in this case, we're looking at importing previous book buyers into a new system, a new system for a bookshop. And the first section of this example says, we've got an import script and we need to make sure that it's idempotent. Yeah, I totally forgot what that was. and <laughs> That was the question I had planned for you. I was yep. going to say, do you remember from my sidebar some weeks ago what idempotency is? <laughs> I remember there was a sidebar. I remember I liked the sidebar, but I do not remember the sidebar. I'm so sorry. So we'll have a brief, a brief little review of it. But it's interesting because I felt that if you were unfamiliar with idempotency, and this was the first time you were reading it, Avdi's explanation may be slightly misleading. I could be I could be being unfair. But mm-hmm. so Avdi says that an important consideration when writing an import script is idempotency. And then it says colon, the import of a given piece of information should happen once and only once. 
And so the simplest definition of idempotency is that given the same inputs, the same output or result is reached. So and what Avdi is trying to get up with idempotent yes. import script is that with the import, you should be able to call the import many times and there sh- with the same file or files and there should be the same result. So there should only ever be one copy of that specific piece of information if the, if the script is idempotent and also it shouldn't error and it shouldn't make duplicates. So that's getting to the heart of what Avdi means by that definition of idempotency. Okay, thank you so much for that because when I read that definition, I thought that's not, it didn't sound familiar, you know? Yes. And And your definition, that's bringing me back because yes, I remember um, the example that we had was we just kept calling the same function over and over again and it didn't matter how many times we called it, we would always get back the same value. Um, so that's that's the definition that is familiar. Awesome. And I like this example because it's a real world example, right? We might have to import different data sets into new systems when we code. And so here it says that when we're doing this type of importing, there are a couple things that we have to think about. One is just the speed of the process, right? Especially if you have hundreds of thousands or millions of records, you know, how fast you can do that definitely counts for something. And two, being able to avoid duplicating information. Obviously, if we duplicate, you know, book buyers and other terrible things like account information, (laughs) that can be very, very dangerous. Uh, So we want to make sure that we avoid duplication. Uh, But one thing that he says that I'm still not entirely sure what it means. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is saying that importing records may have side effects. And I know we've talked about side effects before at some point, kind of a little bit in passing, I, I feel and I'm not entirely sure what side effects means in this context. Well, this is great because I have another little bit pe- prepared for you on command yes. query separation, which is something that Avdi talks about when he's talking about side effects. So in this example, the, we've got this method called import purchase and it returns true or false. And it's not clear what the true or false means because what's happening is you're finding the user in the method, you're finding the user by the email passed in. And then you're saying, if the purchase titles of that user includes the book that you're also passing in, then return false. And in this case, that means that the user's already imported. Otherwise, create a record for that purchase. And so, Avdi says, false does not tell you that either it's errored or it, it's, it was already there. Mm. And also we're making a change in the database and it's not clear where that's happening. And so we talk about command query separation. So, and Theo and I actually talk about this a lot when we're thinking about our methods and it's a concept that I've struggled to get down before, but I think I've got it now. And so it was devised by Bertrand Mayer and it was part of, remember a few chapters ago, there was this reference to the Eiffel programming language and this idea mm-hmm. of design by contract mm-hmm. to do with calling methods. So as part of that work, CQS was developed and it talks about the difference between two types of methods. So there's a query which returns a result and does not change the, the, the state of a system, does not make any change, it doesn't mutate it. And so that means there are no side effects. So it won't, you can ask a question of the database, but you won't insert or you won't change any data. And then there's commands, which will change the state of a system. So those are side effects, but it doesn't return a value. So you just say, insert this user 
or something like that. And so that changes the database, but it doesn't return a value. And there's this great blog post by Martin Fowler, which I found and we'll put in the show notes. And he says that he finds the term command confusing because command can is widely used in many other contexts. And so he refers to them as modifiers or mutators. And that makes it clearer what side effects are. That makes are. a lot more sense. Yeah. yeah. So, but what about active record? So if I make a, you know, change on, if I do like the dot update method or the dot save method, for example, that's a modification to the database, right? But the value that I see as the end user is true or false. Yes, that is, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so that's a return value. However, let me think about that. So it returns a Boolean value. So it might be that active record does not completely follow CQS as well, <gasps> which is that because it's it's a recommendation from OO Design. Mm. So it might not be that active record completely follows it. And it's more guidelines to say, when you're writing your own code, think about this. But yes, that's an interesting point. It'd be interesting to look more into how active record, if it does violate it, like you say, or if it doesn't. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, seeing the true or false in that context is super helpful, right? I I ask like, hey, can you save this? And it says no. And then that's, <laughs> you know, that's good for me to know. So in that case, I think it makes a lot of sense. But it's interesting, right, to look at things that we use in real life and real gems and, and libraries and see, okay, well, what, what does the thing that is recommended and what doesn't? And if it doesn't, then maybe there's a good reason behind it. Yes, and it gives us more tools to equip us to evaluate and analyze things. So I remember when I started programming, people would have such strong opinions about, ooh, this is something I like and I don't like, or I love this tool because of this, or I hate this tool because of this. And it's often I hadn't had at the time that experience or with things to play with them to feel pain or to work out what works well and what doesn't. And it's one of those things that, you know, maybe you can start to evaluate the tools we use every day when we're equipped with these principles and these terms and patterns and they can help us evaluate what's good in different circumstances, which things should we avoid, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in this example, we are looking at a method called import purchase and import purchase takes a date and a title and a user email. It finds that user by the email as you mentioned and then it says if the user has purchased the title that was passed in, then return false because you don't want to import it again. Otherwise, create that new purchase. So create it with the purchase at date and with the title and then return true. So when we talk about QS and the command query separation, we can see that it, it violates it because it has the true false, but then in the else, it also has the thing where it's actually making a modification, which is also a side effect. Indeed. And so from there, what we find is when we actually use this method, so we might use it in an import script, we might do something like if import purchase, then send book invitation email. So as you mentioned, the issue with just returning a true and a false, the true one I think makes sense for the most part, but if it's false, it could mean that the purchase uh, was a duplication. It could mean that something else was wrong with it. It's not very clear as to why it was indeed false. So we think we can do a little bit better than that. So one alternative that Avdi discusses is yielding to a block when the import is carried out instead of returning a value at all. Yes. And he talks about something that we discussed last week, 
which was receiving policies instead of data. And he defines something called an import callback and then says in the method, unless the purchase was already in the system, add it to the records and then execute the import callback. So we now have this conditional, which says unless user.purchasetitles.include title, update the database and then import callback.call. And then we can call the method and add a block to it. So in this case, it's got input purchase with the, the arguments that you've discussed previously, Saron. And then it says do user purchase as arguments, send book invitation email. So now we've got this nice API of being able to say, given a success event, do this thing next. Yes, and it's really nice because it allows us some flexibility too, because if we decide that if on import purchase, we want to do a couple other things or we want to change the, the method, we can kind of do it in the block and see it in the block. And that way we don't really have to worry about a true or false. Uh, so we get a lot more flexibility and I think readability that way too. Yeah. And that's essentially the end of that section. And Avdi closes up by saying, now that we've got a block, it means that we can more clearly separate out the command and query. So we've made changes in the database, but then we can also say, hey, here's what you return to give a more meaningful message on success. And it's it just reveals more about your intentions rather than just this true false value, which as we've said, is not very helpful. Mm -hmm. So in this example, instead of it being about making the code smaller, just in terms of size, you know, and making it shorter, this was really, really focused on intention revealing. And so if you look at just the, the amount of lines of code, they're roughly the same in both example, but the newer version of it, the one with the block, definitely shows you more about what it's trying to do. So a very nice improvement. Yeah. Shall we move on to 5.3? Let's do it. So 5.3 is called represent failure with a benign value. And I love these opening quotes. The opening quote says, the system might replace the erroneous value with a phony value that it knows to have a benign effect on the rest of the system, uh, which I like. I kind of like this idea that there's like fakeness and goodness and, uh, you know, those, those kind of words are just make me happy and make me feel like code is alive. So I really like it. Yeah, of course. It's like our object neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. They're all characters walking around. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in this section... Avdi wants us to focus on cases where we return non-essential values and methods, and sometimes that value may be nil. But if the value is non-essential, and we know that nil can be rather poisonous and dangerous, then it's far better if we introduce a benign value, because then we don't have to do special checking for the nil, and we don't have to be scared of nils. We can be more confident about progressing and knowing that something that is non-essential is not going to cause our code to crash. Yes, exactly. And so one example that we talk about is the render sidebar. And in the render sidebar, we have a section where we're pulling our latest tweets or our three latest tweets. And sometimes you might have those latest tweets. Other times you just may not have anything. And so in that example, it says latest tweets or an empty string is what we're dealing with. And so when we have the actual method called latest tweets, where we take in a number argument, it says, uh, you know, if there's an issue, if there's an error, it just returns nil. And we're not very happy with that because, of course, 
returning nil is not very helpful. It doesn't do anything for us. So instead, we're going to rescue it with something that is equally empty, but is a little bit nicer to us, which is an empty string. Yes, and I like the question that Alfie poses. He says, do we really need to represent the error case with nil here? And then he says, how can we create a more humane interface? It's just interesting, <laughs> that idea of humane, about being considerate and compassionate when you code. And again, yeah. I, f- I feel like the beginning of this section all on delivering results is much more focused on other people using your code and the considerations on the other end. Having said that, there was a lot about thinking about how client coders interact with your code too. But yes. it is just interesting, this use of the word humane and when we're thinking about writing code. <laughs> So we've all seen nil so many times while we're coding that I just accepted it as this is just a thing that's going to be there, you know, and it's going to be a part of my code life and I just need to figure out a way around it. And Avdi is reminding us over and over again throughout these sections that we have a lot more control over how we code and how we deal with things and how we present code to others, right? So it's, it's a really good reminder of the control that we actually do have in our coding environments, even if we're a little bit newer and even if the stuff is a little bit more intimidating, we still have a lot of say in it. So this is a really nice example of, you know, going from nil to an empty string. It's it's small, but it's nicer. It's easier. It's, uh, you know, it's much more helpful and much more benign. And all the heart of all of it is this idea that software is fundamentally people, both you as the main developer. So this idea of how can you give yourself more confidence? How can you be empowered and show you have control? But also, hey, you're working with teammates and clients and people you don't know if it's open source or people who come to your code after you've gone. And it's all about making it an easier job for all the people that work on the code as well. Yes, definitely. And so wrapping up that section, Avdi says, Nil is the worst possible representation of a failure. It carries no meaning, but can still break things out. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Nil. And so therefore, when we're talking about a value that's used, but non-essential, we don't need it to break our whole system. Let's find something that's workable, but semantically blank. So like you said, when you were talking through the tweets example, you said you used the term, it still is empty or something like that. And it's this mm-hmm. idea of, yep, yeah, it's empty too, but it just doesn't break things. It's it's nicer. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And that's the end of that section. Yeah. So we've now switched gears to delivering results. And as you've heard, Avdi does not like nil, we don't like nil, and you've probably had some really bad experiences hunting down those nils and working around them. So we want to hear your nil story. Tell us about a time where nil just drove you up the wall. Record your 30-second response or write up your story and send it to us at hello at rubybookclub.com. And you might hear yourself on the show or you might hear us tell your story on the show. And don't forget to tweet us at rubybookclub and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheers.